You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. You can find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. You can open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're going to follow along with the text, we'll be looking at verses 18 and following. But I want to say it's really great to be here with you. Uh, We are new. Beth and I are new to Texas, lived in Pennsylvania all of our lives. And so we got here last May and uh, enjoyed the hot weather uh, straight away. And uh, being up in the Austin Round Rock area, the, the immediate uh, people have asked us what we think of Texas and what it's like. Our immediate thoughts were the traffic is fairly overwhelming because there was just more of it, and a lot more traffic lights, and the traffic lights would stay red forever. So what felt like forever, you understand. So uh, what was humorous was in driving, uh, I, t- I tend to know how to go through a yellow light. I, I'm good at that. And, uh, but up in that area, you, the light is yellow, and everybody just rolls, and then it goes red, and they're still just rolling through. I went through some red lights, and I look at my mirror, and there's still people coming after me. And this was, we don't do that in PA. There's actually cameras that take your picture, and like, you get tickets, and like, we don't, we don't do that. Uh, so the heat was interesting, the traffic was interesting, and uh, it was explained to me, so I'm still figuring this out, so you get to bear with me this morning. I'm from the Northeast. I'm told that the people from the Northeast act differently than Texans. This has been explained to me like this. Uh, Texans are genteel. Like, they say kind of what they want to say, but they don't say it directly. I don't know if this is true or not. This has been explained to me by several native Texans. Um, I don't know if they're pulling my leg or if it's a real thing. So you're, you're my test case because you're the first time been out and about. So in the Northeast, um, we say what we mean and we're clear about it. Like, there it is. And I don't know if we are genteel or not. So um, there are a couple of things I'll say in this sermon that, that are more direct. And uh, I just want you to know I love you. And if it seems like I'm not being genteel, but I mean more direct and clear, uh, you have to love me. You got to bear with me in that. So that's, that's just the way this is going to, is going to work. Um, I was happy along with Beth to do the, the parenting seminar. Uh, we've been parents for a long time. Our kids are in their forties. In fact, Beth and I, uh, in June, will have our 50 year anniversary of our first date. So we are married almost 46 years, but, uh, that was our first date. And so we've been inseparable ever since, and she's the best part of my life. So happy she's here as well. So um, let me just pray a brief word of prayer to get us started, and we'll dive into God's word. Lord, I ask that you would come and speak to us. Lord, Lord, wash us with the water of your word. Change us where you would have us change. Help us to enjoy the grace that's ours in Christ, Help us to appreciate that everything's been paid for. Everything's paid in full. Jesus paid it all. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live this one life you've given us, this gift, for your glory. So in everything we say and do, Lord, we want to live for you. And I pray that you would help us to that end this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Many churches are in a season of life where attendance at church is considered an optional thing. I follow a few folks online. I, I left Instagram, I left Facebook. I'm still on Twitter. Uh, my last social media piece, and if Elon Musk bails it out, all right, I might stay there, otherwise I might leave that too. But many churches don't see attendance as necessary, and many church experts are advocating that we simply go to streaming as, as a way of life. So I'm happy you're here today. Um, I think COVID made a contribution to this. I'm just speaking around the country at large. People stayed home, did streaming, and they kind of got used to it in, in an awful lot of places. So leaders are advocating for this practice, and uh, I think we ought to take a hard look at whether it's wise or not. One pastor I interacted with in Austin uh, had a pastor of a church that had attendance of 5,000, it's a megachurch, before COVID, and then after COVID, their attendance was 3,000, but they had 3,000 streaming online on a Sunday, so 6,000 instead of 5,000, and their giving hadn't gone down at all. Uh, they had one campus, the one that we were most closely working with, had gone from 400 people to 50 people, and allegedly the people were uh, invested in their streaming that, that they had going on. So my question is, does it matter? Is streaming the same as being here at church in person? Does it, does it make any difference? Because I'm saying there's a lot of people pushing the church this way. In this sermon, I'm going to argue for the necessity of in-person attendance. So here are two questions I want to ask you to help you think about why you're here today. Why'd you come to church today? Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a conviction. Maybe you had to serve. Maybe a family member wanted you to come. Maybe you wanted to see friends. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here today. Maybe nothing better to do. Genuine Christians instinctively gather with other Christians. It has been this way all through church history. We love to gather together. And if you know your Bibles, in earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we read these words, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, not neglecting to meet together. So this is the case on a Sunday morning. It's also the case in the small groups we have in our churches where there are absolute essential means of grace where we need to gather and we want to gather, not only to receive, but we grow as healthy Christians by giving to others as well. If you aren't giving out to others, you are, in effect, the Dead Sea. If you're familiar with the Dead Sea in Israel, it's full of minerals and you, you can't drown in it. It's, just, it's worthless water. Um, we don't want to be like the Dead Sea. So we're, we're called by God to receive, but that's not the end of it. 
we're called to also give and invest in others. So it's quite common to notice that the most mature Christians, so let me just, don't shout out names, just think along with me here, (laughs) and don't say yourself. Uh, Just think of the three most mature believers in the church. Just think who that might be to you. It would be different people, no doubt. But what you'll notice, I would bet every dollar I have, is that those folks who are most mature regularly attend church gatherings in person. They are at a Sunday meeting, they're at a small group meeting, because because those people didn't just get there by accident. It didn't just happen by osmosis. Happened because of what they invested in and what they received. Gathering with the saints is a means of grace. So why'd you come today? And second, what did you expect to experience? Perhaps a call to worship, singing, prayer, announcements, a sermon, chat with friends. Expectations are an important part of life, but we would hope that you gather with some sense of expectation that you will encounter God in some way at some point. Whether it's a line in a song, whether it's a verse that is read, whether it's something in the sermon, I've actually experienced in preaching people thanking me for saying something in a sermon that I never said. And what happens is, God, as we're sitting under the word and listening, sometimes God drops things in our heart. So we, we pray that you encounter the Lord as we gather. But would it surprise you to learn that we Christians are called to a greater? We are called to a higher, a more majestic understanding of our gathering. I'm going to read this text, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, so we understand why we gather. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. May God bless the preaching of his word. This section of Hebrews is the pinnacle, doctrinally speaking, of the book of Hebrews. This text lays out the contrast between the old covenant, Mount Sinai, and the new covenant, Mount Zion. The old covenant is Moses. The new covenant is Jesus Christ. So the point we will consider in the sermon is this. The place in which we live and worship as Christians is not Sinai, but it's heaven. We worship God in heaven. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, the text says we have come. Not will come one day in the future. Not might come one day in the future. We have come. And that 
is glorious. So three points all related to experience. First, the experience of Mount Sinai, because we need to be familiar with that. Second, the experience of Mount Zion. And then third, the experience we have as we gather together here today. And by the way, um, there's no clock in here, so I guarantee I'll be done in an hour and a half. Um, But I have no idea what time it is, so you're along for the ride. Point one, the experience at Mount Sinai. If we summarize the experience at Mount Sinai in a single word, the word I'd pick is terrifying. Mount Sinai is terrifying. And just in case you weren't familiar with the Old Testament, I'll read the account for you from Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. People trembled because what they were seeing was overwhelming to their senses. They were being overwhelmed. They were were terrified. And they didn't even know they were at risk of death. They didn't even know that was in play. How would that happen? Well, the danger was they might break through to the Lord. So listen, this is not a pleasant experience with God. I say again, this is terrifying. To encounter God in this way is alarming. Now, here's what they encountered at Mount Sinai, according to our text. They came to a mountain they could not touch. If they touched the mountain, then they would die. They'd be stoned. They came to a blazing fire, which fire is used in different ways in the Bible, but it often refers to God's presence in anger and judgment. They came to darkness. Darkness is commonly a symbol of misery. They came to gloom, more misery. They came to a tempest, which is a storm. They came to a trumpet. The trumpet was getting louder and louder, which leads one to wonder just where is this going to end? What's exactly happening as the trumpet blasts and blasts even louder? And worst of all, they came to a voice whose words made them beg that there would be no more words. The experience was terrifying. That's who God was to them at that time. That's our God, and that, that is so concerning to some people who, who want to say, um, well, God is love. So since God is love, what do we do with this Old Testament stuff? Well, we got to pitch it. we got to throw it out, because this was, like, this was like ancient people with their superstitions, and it didn't actually happen. This wasn't actually real. But no, no, this is actually a picture of God. But God is love. Uh, I encountered in my work a Methodist pastor in around 1980. 
who was the first individual that was explaining to me that we need to leave the Old Testament behind and not pay attention to it, that it wasn't legit. And this is, this is a tragic error because the Old Testament points to Christ in all its ways. And you, you can't say we're going to do away with Jesus. Uh, it's not going to work for us very, very well. But this is an alarming picture of God. We, we can summarize the Old Covenant experience of God as intimidating. It's filled with darkness and terror. It speaks of separation from God. He's there, but he's far off. And listen, he is not friendly. They experienced him in his anger. But notice verse 18, you have not come to this. Now, this is really good news. Now, this is wonderful news. They were gathered in fear in the Old Testament, not in hope. They were scared to death. We're in a position to receive something far better. We have a new and better covenant in Christ. Therefore, we gather in hope when we are gathered. So let's understand what's taking place when we gather. Point two, the experience at Mount Sinai, verses 22 to 24. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God. Notice again, spiritually speaking, you have come. This is a culmination of what's been taught and preached throughout the letter of Hebrews. I'm going to read you four verses, five verses, that describe what the experience has been like throughout Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16. Just listen how different this is to Mount Sinai. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. That's, that's far different from Mount Sinai. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, that's Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Even in the moments where we feel lonely, even in moments where you feel no one cares, there's one seated in the heavens who is praying for you, and you are therefore never alone. Hebrews 10, 21, 22. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. In Hebrews eleven six, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The experience at Mount Zion is dramatically different from the experience at Mount Sinai, where they were told, do not draw near to God. In fact, if you come onto the mountain, you're dead, where that was the Old Testament experience. Now, we're invited to come. We're invited to draw near to this one great God that we serve. Here are the phrases that were used to describe Mount Zion. It's the city of the living God. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. This is God's true and real dwelling place. There are innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is a joyful party and celebration. This is not dour, serious, sad. This is, this is a glorious feast that we're talking about. It's a wonderful party. It is the assembly, and this is the word for church, ecclesia, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven 
These are those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so we sing songs like, sinners find eternal joy in the triumph of your wounds. By your Savior's crimson flow, holy wrath has been removed. And your saints below us join with your saints above, rejoicing in the risen Lamb. We're all one people, spiritually speaking. And then there's God, the judge of all people. God will judge us, but we have reconciliation with him. We have peace with God, so there's no worries. The righteousness of Christ covers us completely and totally. So when we appear, let's just imagine that there was such a thing as getting to heaven's gates, and St. Peter is truly there asking you, why should I, why should I let you in? You aren't going to say, because I, and fill in the blank. That isn't going to be your answer. Your, your answer is going to be the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ is mine. He covers me. You're going to point to Jesus, not yourself, because there's not much in us to be impressed by or to point at. But Christ covers us perfectly and completely with his righteousness. So we do not fear that judgment. Then there's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That refers to the intermediate state. You understand that when we die as Christians, we go immediately to be with the Lord, but we don't yet have our glorified bodies. So it's a spiritual existence, and uh, we cry out. Well, the martyrs cry out in Revelation 5 for judgment to occur, but they are interested in having those glorified bodies in which we will live forever. And then there's Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is our all in all. Uh, this is glorious that he is our mediator. J.I. Packer says, the Bible is a book of witness to Christ, not as teacher or example, merely, nor even primarily, but as mediator. The mediation of Jesus between God and man, whereby the new and everlasting covenant has been established, is the Bible's main theme. The blood of Jesus is a difference between Mount Sinai and what we know in Mount Zion. Jesus makes the difference. It's his blood that puts us there. And then the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance and justice. But the blood of Jesus offers us a pardon. So it's a better word. Offering us pardon is a better word than justice and, and revenge. It's glorious. So this good news affects our view of God. We're invited to come to God who, because of what Christ did, is now welcoming and desires us to come and fellowship with him. We're invited into his presence. So Packer again says, regarding our view of God, the Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by knowledge of the greatness of God. But this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. So let's evaluate our lives. And that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. We are modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. Now it is our aim to have great thoughts about God because we see what the Old Testament existence was like and we see what's taking place in the New Testament, the thing to which we have now come. 
and it shapes, it molds our view of God. It's a new day. Once approaching God would have been filled with dread and terror. You wouldn't even dare to do it. We were enemies. We were haters. Now we're invited to a joyful party. We have a mediator, the man, Christ Jesus, and we have unhindered access to God. He invites us to come from wherever we are at the moment. We don't clean ourselves up first. We don't improve ourselves. We don't say, give me a month and I'll get back to you. Got a few things to work on. He invites us to come exactly as we are. In fact, that is the main thing that qualifies us. We simply come as we are. If we seek to add to that, we are only subtracting in the end. We have access. We have fellowship. So we gather as a church, a congregation, to worship Jesus. So Donald Whitney says, like worshipers in the same room, yet divided by a veil, when we worship God, there's a real sense in which we are participating in the unseen heavenly worship already occurring. Think of that. The point is that the worship of heaven, both that which is currently in process, is congregational worship. Thus, our congregational worship is more like heaven than individual worship. So we are gathered in hope because we understand that when we gather, it isn't just us. We are gathered with the saints who have gone before us. We are before the throne of God as we sing. Spiritually speaking, we're gathering with the redeemed saints around the throne of God. Can't see it with your eyes. But this is the reality of what takes place every Sunday as we gather, we are before the throne of God. Biblical hope is an indication of certainty, a strong and confident expectation of certainty. Friends, when we gather as a church, we meet now with the king, and one day we will meet with the king in a physical sense where it's face to face. We will see him as he really is. So this is way more than just we're planning to gather and sing a couple songs and announcements and um, fellowship, sermon. We're, we're gathering around the throne of God. We're meeting with the king. Now, isn't the grace and mercy of God overwhelming? Is it not amazing that once no access and now we have this access. God invites us to gather regularly as the people of God in his presence. When we gather, we meet with God and we prioritize singing because we're singing with the saints in heaven and we're singing to one another as well to encourage our hearts. And there is preaching where the preacher declares the word of God for God, stands in his stead and allows the word to speak. But it's as if we're before the throne of God as we gather because we have come. So what a privilege and what a joy and what a hope as we gather together. So third point, our experience here today, or, or if you like, if it helps, because we're already here and into the service, think about next Sunday. Next Sunday, as you gather, what's your mindset? Uh, first, I want to say, why would you ever want to miss gathering? If in gathering... We're before the throne of God, and it's about Jesus more than it's about us. If that's the case, why would we ever want to miss that? Given the glorious things happening, how can we be spiritually indifferent since we are before Jesus? 
How can we say, ah, dismiss him, Want not, not today? How could we do that to the king? Sure, things come up and we can't make it. There's vacation, sickness. In some professions, there's work. But how would it even be possible that in our hearts we don't want to gather? No want to when we think about and consider this Jesus. On vacation, Beth and I almost always attend a church somewhere. We want to, and my soul needs grace more than I need downtime on a Sunday morning. There are some things that one can't get just by staying home. One needs to gather with the saints. We must show up to be faithful to Scripture. Woody Allen said 80% of success is showing up. I want to say that's true because, listen, I'll grant you that there are some meetings that seem more pedestrian and ordinary, but, and you don't know. It's like the stock market. The stock market goes up really high every now and then. But you don't know which days those are. No one does. you got to be in the market to have those gains. you got to be at church to realize the grace of God that comes to us through these ordinary means. you got to be there. So we want to show up. We gather because it's what a church does. It's who we are. It's what we do. And so we gather in hope, but we must gather. John Stott says, We're not only Christian people, we're also church people. We are not only committed to Christ, we're committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God, not a divine afterthought, not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. So Saturday night, We plan for the next morning, just like we're catching an early flight. You know how that plane leaves, no matter where you are? They don't care where you are. If you're on, great. Uh, They leave. Uh, We show up, think ahead, have a plan, and we show up on time. There's a Bible verse in my Bible that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and be on time. Um, It's just my translation. That's not a real verse for any. um, but, But... But listen, when we aren't in time, and you guys do a better job than most, uh, when we aren't on time, it it is about the king um, and the one that we are meeting with. How can we be casual in meeting with the saints with King Jesus? Now, I've been around a long time. I get things happen. It's normal, normal part of life. And Just imagine you were going to go visit the president. President of the U.S., whoever it is at the time, invites you to come to the White House. He wants a one-on-one consult with you. Well, most of us would say, oh, I'm I'm taking that up. i got a few things I'd like to share. Um, So I'm I'm going to be there. And, And I think I can promise you that we would all be early. We'd be there looking good. And we are ready to go. We're there an hour ahead of time because we want to make sure we don't miss our appointment with the president. And you're going to say to me, this is at least what I would say, that's a one-of. Like, that's a special deal. That's a big thing. Like, of course I'm going to be on time for that. That's, that's really important. But I want to say to you, is Sunday in and Sunday out, we're not meeting the president. We're meeting with King Jesus. We're before him. And King Jesus rules and reigns. He has all authority. He rules and reigns over all things and all people. 
He's over the president, he's over princes, he's over kings, he's over all politicians. He rules and reigns over all things. And we'd wanna be on time there. I just wanna encourage you, oh, let's make every effort to be on time here when the saints gather together. Second, when we gather, we celebrate. Under the gloom and terror of the old covenant, did you notice what wasn't there? They weren't singing. They weren't singing. There was no, this is the day the Lord has made. I'll be glad and rejoice in it, breaking out. That wasn't happening. They weren't singing because they weren't glad. They were terrified. When we gather as the redeemed of the Lord, we actively engage in worship. Now, the older I've gotten, the more I've slowed down. So we understand that. But we sing, we speak, we stand, we clap, we kneel, we bow, we shout, we lift our hands, we dance and we sit, we engage God as we gather together. When people encounter us, may it be noted that we are not weird or uncontrolled or rowdy in our actions. We're not, we're not crazy out of control. But listen, no dead orthodoxy either. We aren't dead. We're alive in Christ, and Christians sing. So as we are gathered and as we're before him, we're singing with the saints of God, spiritually speaking, those who are already there, and we are gathered with them, and this is glorious. It is a celebration. Now, you're going to say, yeah, but what about seasons of grief and lament? Well, they come, and they're, they're part of the experience, and we hope to leave room for all the emotions. But the thing is, joy will one day be restored. There are times where the events of life are so tragic, it takes a while. And we give people all that space, all the space they need. Psalm 30, verse four and five says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If you've been through tragedy, it's, it's sorrowful, and you think you'll never bounce back. But as you look to the Lord, he gives strength, and eventually there is a joy that you encounter in the Lord because you love him and he is for you. So do you celebrate? Yeah, you, you celebrate if you're happy in Jesus. Um, listen, may sports or any other activities we engage in not show us with more passion for that than we have for Jesus when we're gathered with the saints. So I've gone to a few concerts over the years. Uh, there's one musician I've seen who plays almost four hours. The crowd waits for hours in line to get in. They get in and then they stand the entire concert and they sing, they belt out the songs, the whole time they are passionate. I'm saying it's four hours. Like we're not talking 30 minutes. Um, it, it's, it's lengthy. If you're wondering who it is, it's Bruce Springsteen. Um, I, I go and I watch and I marvel because these are people that allegedly couldn't drop in a church and have any passion for Jesus. And yet, and yet there is this huge passion. And I recently watched some World Cup soccer matches. So I don't know if soccer is big here or not. But those people, they chant before the match. They're chanting during the match. 
and they're still singing after the match. And these are British sometimes. <laughs> like, you're all supposed to be stayed and upper lip and like all that, right? And all proper. And yet, and yet, a soccer match, football they call it, off, off we go. Uh, same thing happens here with American football. People go out ahead of time, party before the event, go in, cheer at the game, and party after the game. I mean, it's an elaborate event, lots of passion going into this. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus. And when we gather, we sing because we are glad in what God has done for us. Jesus deserves our highest passions. Third, when we gather, we express gratitude and thanksgiving. As we express gratitude and thanksgiving, let me encourage, here's our understanding of the Bible. The man, the husband, is the head of the wife. The wife is called to walk in submission to him. Therefore, spiritually speaking, the husband is the head of the home. And so husband as head of the home, let me encourage you to be the chief worshiper. So may no one sing louder or longer in your home than you. When we gather here, listen, men, masculinity looks like loving Jesus and singing songs of praise to him. Being passive and not singing is no display of strength. It's no display of anything. Now, listen, if you're here and you aren't saved, you don't belong to Jesus, I completely understand not singing, and and I'm not knocking you. But if you profess faith in Christ, and if you belong to him, and if you were once understanding that God could be like the God at Mount Sinai, and you understand that change has come, how will we not sing? How will we not celebrate before this king? So we gather, men, we set the example because our sins are forgiven. We're adopted as children of God. His love is fastened on us. So a few verses down in Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Well, what's acceptable worship? He defines it in his word. And so we sing, we shout. We dance, we, we rejoice before him. So let us be grateful because we want to offer acceptable worship. And, and who are we? As we appear before Christ, who are we? Listen to this description. These are all Bible verses. We are more than conquerors in Christ. I like the thought of being a conqueror. We're more than conquerors in Christ. We march in triumphant procession. As we're on our way from here to there, we're marching in triumphant procession. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, no matter how the world shakes, and it will shake. God promises that. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and we are more than overcomers, more than overcomers. So our corporate worship emphasizes the gathering of the believers. It affects all of life, but when the church gathers, We're gathering spiritually around the throne of Jesus. We're with him, and that's glorious. So forth. When we gather, we come to the end of the gathering, and we depart, we go out those doors to live our life in the world. 
We go as ambassadors. We gather in hope, and we find this desire at work in us to share Jesus with others, and we want to see others joining in this worship of Jesus. We want the congregation to increase for his glory. Matters not for us. So 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and following, for the love of Christ controls us, which it does if we get the difference of the Old Testament to the New. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are blessed. And as we worship Jesus, may our affections ever grow and increase for him as we understand what he did for us at the cross. This is amazing grace. So I close. We're no longer at Mount Sinai under the old covenant. We've come to Mount Zion, the city of God, and we have a new covenant. Therefore, we rejoice. Lift up your eyes and see. Behold your God. We live by faith, which delivers passion, and we live by conviction. So Arthur Jerry Bridges said, a conviction is a determinative belief, something you believe so strongly that it affects the way you live. Someone had observed that a belief is what you hold, but a conviction is what holds you. You may live contrary to what you believe, but you cannot live contrary to your convictions. So we gather as a church, we gather in hope, looking forward to that day when all things are summed up in Christ and we are with him. But spiritually speaking, we have come already to that heavenly place and we live there. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let me pray for us. Lord, these are spiritual realities that we can't see with our natural eyes. So I pray that you would illuminate truth to us by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help us to see the realities of life as we know it now. No longer before an angry God, but now before a God who loves us and accepts us right where we are as he brings us into his kingdom and changes us for his glory. But I pray that we would be in that company of folks who sing and shout and clap. I pray that our hearts would be full and overflowing of love for you. And I pray that we would express that as we worship together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.